Welcome to the Words of West Cork podcast. It's a podcast where you'll hear something like this. On that occasion, she'd been drinking, we'd both been drinking. I've uh, Maybe, I don't know what happened, but she started to grab me. And we'll analyse using only the words we hear, whether we're hearing the truth or whether we're hearing lies. And for the first four episodes, we've been looking at the murder of Sophie Toscan de Plantier. Sophie was murdered in West Cork in Ireland in December of 1996. And we've been looking at the words and analysing the statements of people at the centre of the investigation. If you haven't listened to the first four episodes yet, I suggest you go back and start there. Uh, not only do I share the way that I look at words, the principles I use when I'm decoding them and seeing what's inside them, but we look at the words of the prime suspect at the time, Ian Bailey, the one-time chief witness, Marie Farrell, other witnesses who say they can place Ian Bailey in compromising situations, and also Ian's partner at the time, Jules Thomas. We learned a lot along the way, although by the end of episode four, I said I was frustrated that I couldn't pin down Ian Bailey and say exactly what I thought was going on with him. And at the end of this episode, I'm going to come to a firm conclusion on Ian Bailey based on something I've discovered while doing some more research. First of all, though, wordsofwestcourt.com is the website that supports this podcast. You can see the words of the people there. And also, I was asking through the series for comments, questions or suggestions from people. So I've got a few of those there. The first one comes from Ian. I don't think it's that one. Um, and he has a question about how well Ian Bailey knew Sophie. And he says in, in episode one, we heard him say that he wouldn't have been able to pick out pick her out and he stops and says something very different. And I pointed that out in the episode. I really would have loved to have known what it was that he was going to say and then changed his mind and said something else. And Ian suggests, was Ian Bailey about to say, I wouldn't have been able to pick her out in the dark? Let's have a listen and see if that would work or be plausible. I, w I wouldn't have known who she was. I wouldn't have been able to pick her out, for instance, in... in um I wouldn't have known her. So when you saw her pick... Ian, I, I think it's highly possible that he may well have been going to say, I wouldn't have been able to pick her out in the dark. It's a well-known phrase. Um, it would make a lot of sense in the context of what we're hearing as well. We should be careful not to put words in someone's mouth. To be fair, he stopped. He didn't say where he wouldn't be able to pick her out. But I think it's entirely possible that that could have been one of the things he was going to say. Got something else in here from, from Brona, who talks about Marie Farrell um, and asks if it is possible that Ian Bailey did intimidate her to change her story and also if um, it's possible that after that intimidation or, or as part of that intimidation, he said that um, he'd cut her in on some money if he won some money in a court case um, if she changed her story. Uh, Brona, everything is possible. Marie Farrell... Uh, Everything she said, just about everything she said, was very, very deceptive. What you've suggested, I think, is logically possible, but her story changes so often, it's so hard to pin her down, and her language is deceptive at just about every turn she takes. So did the intimidation happen? Look, this is possible. If we look at Marie in isolation talking about this, this is her talking about the, the her denial of the intimidation. And it's not very convincing. She doesn't say no, it didn't happen. She uses the word never, which is nowhere near as strong as no. Have a listen. I said that he was harassing me and he was calling into the shop and he was threatening me and none of that ever happened. Did he ever do that to you? Never, never. So he never threatened to suit your troll? Never did. So in isolation, that's not a very strong denial. 
um, that the the intimidation didn't happen. So, Brona, the intimidation could have happened. And here is Marie talking about the allegation that she stood to make some money that Ian Bailey was going to give her half of any money that he won in a court case. The inference is that you change your opinion because you'd go to a case against the state, Bailey would be paid a load of money and you'd get half it. I don't know where that came from. There was nothing for me to gain by changing my statements or my story. The only thing was I th- thought it was time to tell the truth and stand up to the guards. Again, that's a very weak denial. She's asked, the allegation is you stood to make some money and she doesn't say, no, that's not true or no, I wasn't going to make any money or no, there was no such deal made. She says, I don't know where that came from. That That's very interesting. So, Brona, I think both of the things you say are quite possible. So what are we saying here? Uh, potentially that um, Marie Farrow, and I think that her words are most credible when she talks about how the the police um, tried to get her to give incriminating evidence about Ian Bailey, even though she didn't really have anything to say about him. Um, And then Ian Bailey maybe, maybe intimidated her, um, maybe rightfully intimidated her by saying, you've nothing on me, you're not telling the truth here. And then when that didn't work, maybe he went, oh, I'll I'll offer you some money there. When the intimidation didn't work, he offered some money. In isolation, both of Marie Farrell's answers around those, both of her statements around that, Brona, show signs of deception. So when she is denying that the intimidation happened, the words are deceptive. And when she's asked about the allegations that she stood to make money out of changing her story, again, her answer that she didn't is not convincing. Alicia um, emailed, and she asks, is it possible that Jules was involved in the murder? Oh, I'm not so sure, Alicia. Uh, Jules's words, the, she never, Jules doesn't defend herself with her words. She's not deceptive about herself in the words. She always comes to Ian's defence, not her own defence, or she doesn't come to a wee defence either. Um, she echoes Ian's words a lot. She doesn't have any original things of her own to say. And her deception that we noticed, and I noticed a lot of deception from Jules, is is after the fact. She doesn't create any alibis for herself or any rationalisation for any of her behaviour. She only ever creates rationalisation for Ian's behaviour. So, no, I don't think that, that Jules was involved in that. And at times she's very direct when she talks about a murderer, a murder and killing. So she did, she never downplays the severity of what happened. So I didn't see anything, Alicia, in Jules's words that, um, that, that suggested that she could have been involved in the murder. Michelle gets in touch on, on Billy Fuller and the great story that Billy told. And she mentions that Billy mentions stuff twice in his story. Yes, he does. Take a listen. So I actually went up to, as a friend to tell him what people were saying about him, you know. I went around his house, innocently knocked on the door, he came to the door, let me in. He was sat down and he had like drink everywhere and like rich food and all this stuff. And he said, oh, do you want a glass of cider? I said, well, I'm actually working. I said, but I just popped in to see you. He was relaxed until I came out with what people are saying about him, that he'd be howling at the moon and stuff. Straight away, bang. So there's two stuffs from Billy in that fantastic story that he told. Stuff we use for two reasons when we use it deceptively. One is to minimise something. So if I was doing something and I really didn't want you to know what it was, I might say, oh, I was having tea and stuff. Uh, and I'm hiding a whole lot of things with the and stuff. 
I think what Billy is doing, though, is he's using stuff to make things sound bigger than they are. So um, it, there was lots of rich food and stuff. I don't think there was much more than some rich food knocking around. But what Billy wants to do is give us the impression that this was entirely an oddball situation that he walked in. But because it wasn't that odd, he doesn't have the real words to say, you know, there was rich food and um, all sorts of um, strange cakes out and um, a beef wellington on the table or whatever it is. He does not have words to say that. So he says lots of rich food and stuff. And then when he's talking about the uh, that he wants to tell Ian the stories that people are saying about him, he says that people are saying he's been howling at the moon and stuff. I think people have only been saying he's been howling at the moon. It only takes one person to say, I saw him howling at the moon. It goes around town. It becomes Chinese whispers. But that's all that's been said. But Billy wants to make Ian sound weirder again, which is, you know, the, the double use of his and stuff is to make Ian Bailey sound weirder. So he's been howling at the moon and stuff. I think that's what's going on there, Michelle. Michelle also raises another point about the late night article, the alibi that Ian Bailey says when Sophie was murdered, he was sitting writing an article because he had a deadline to hit for a newspaper. Um, and I pointed out at the time, both um, Ian and Jules, when they spoke about the article, were very keen to say where the article was written on the kitchen table. Have a listen. Well, I did get up that night and I did... Um and I did some writing here on the, on this kitchen table. I just know what he was doing that night. He was here writing on this table, a newspaper article. And I asked, why is it so important for them to say exactly where the writing took place? Surely the fact he was writing in the house should be enough. Why is it important it's at the kitchen table? And Michelle says, on this kitchen table... I think Bailey's intention here was to keep himself within the walls of the Prairie House, which is where Ian and Jules lived for as long as possible that night and not outside of his house. The studio house, which was where Bailey did the majority of his writing. But he stresses that night on this kitchen table because once he moves outside the Prairie House, he will have to discuss a part of his alibi that is weak and a part that he is not comfortable with. Michelle, thank you for that. I think that is, is a really good spot and makes a lot of sense. And in the back of that, we do have to ask why Ian and Jules felt it so important to get across where the article was written, why they had to stress where the article was written, potentially because they were being deceptive. Shana has um, a really interesting spot in some of Ian Bailey's words from episode one, where he discusses, I guess, an early alibi. So in episode one, we were looking at interviews Ian Bailey gave shortly after he was arrested on suspicion of the murder. Um, just have a listen to what he says here. They just need me to confess, but I can account for all of my movements during the period. The guards wanted me to confess, but I can account for all of my movements during the period. Now, what Shana says is that at the time that that interview was given, Ian Bailey said he was asleep in bed. So there are no movements there. So why is he accounting for all his movements when there are none? Why doesn't he say, I can say where I was at the time? I can tell you where I was. No, he says, I can account for all my movements. We move on to that late night article that Michelle uh, mentioned, and this um, came out later, I believe. I think this is uh, brought up as an alibi. I could not have murdered Sophie because I got up at two or three in the morning and started writing an article on the kitchen table. Again, this wouldn't be movements. This would be what I was doing. So why has he mentioned his movements on the night? Shana, I think great spot there as well. 
And finally, um, some comments from Paul who says he thinks stalking was involved. And Paul, yes, um, I thought in episode one when um, Ian's talking about the very qualified way that I didn't know Sophie, but I had seen her. I said that the 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 the, the evidence in the words. Yeah, I really thought he was stalking her. And he's at pains to say he didn't know her, but he did know of her. And I thought it very much sounded like stalking. And stalking covers a lot of ground. There are different levels of stalking, different proximities of stalking, different levels that it is taken to. So I think there was a high chance that Ian Bailey was stalking Sophie. But I have to say, stalking someone does not mean that you killed that person. But also, stalking's a regular theme in this story. If you look at Billy Fuller and the story that he told where Ian, he felt Ian Bailey um, was projecting a confession onto Billy, that entirely was stalking. You saw her in Spar and you followed her home. Stalking. Marie Farrell told a story about someone stalking Sophie. Now, I didn't think that story was true, but it's interesting that Marie Farrell has decided to tell a story about stalking. And in some of the intimidation that she mentions that she got from Ian Bailey, which I think potentially could be true, just looking at the words in isolation, there's a stalking element to them. They would bump into each other. He would turn up outside her house. So stalking comes up so often in this story, in the words of the people that we've heard from, that I'm quite convinced some stalking did go on in West Cork in the 90s. Thank you for all the questions, suggestions and comments. I found them exceedingly useful and um, I think they help me form a view about what I'm going to say. There are so many lies being told in this story. I think it is fair for me to conclude, having listened to the words of the witnesses, there's overwhelming evidence in those words that the police wanted to nail Ian Bailey for this crime and they put pressure on people to give statements to give them evidence against him. Jules Thomas, his partner at the time, was my big surprise. I found very little, if anything, to reassure me in her words. She is being deceptive about Ian, for sure. But why? And then Ian Bailey. Look, there are too many indicators of deception for me to say this guy is telling the truth. He doesn't often give a straight denial that he was involved in the murder. As I said earlier, some of the language evoked images of stalking Sophie. I wasn't there. I don't know what happened, but I can look at what he comes back to time and time again in his words. I had nothing to do with this and I know I didn't do it. These are a distant, unreliable denials. And look at that. I had nothing to do with that. It's a very similar phrase to it had nothing to do with me. And that's something we say when we could have been responsible for something, but we can claim we aren't. Did you dent my car when you were driving it? Nothing to do with me. How did that glass get smashed? Nothing to do with me. And I was supposed to leave it there. There are hours of interviews around this story and I wanted to focus on the words of the people that were there at the time talking about the events at the time, on the night and surrounding times. But I wasn't happy to leave Ian Bailey there. I was undecided about him. I was searching interviews to see if I'd missed something. And the more I heard him talk, instead of coming across like he is denying the crime, he comes across as if he's not responsible for it, which is a different thing. So who does he think has responsibility then? If he doesn't have responsibility, who does he think has responsibility? Would that be someone else? 
Possibly, but in all the words I've looked at, he, he never mentions someone else in any way. So this is much more conceptual around responsibility. And I was poring over Ian Bailey interviews, trying to find that one thing that would let it all fall into place for me. And then I heard him talking about domestic violence, especially beating up his partner, Jules. Violence, you can't really contest that, can you? Uh, no, but it has to be taken in context. Is there a context for domestic violence? Well, there was in my case because I'd, I, I, I was irresponsible with alcohol. I was irresponsible with whiskey. Explicitly there, he is blaming alcohol for the domestic violence, not himself. And that's the context. He takes ownership of the irresponsibility. I was irresponsible with alcohol. I was irresponsible with whiskey. But the logic is because he's been irresponsible, we should give him a break for the domestic violence. Just listen to the logic in his words. I was irresponsible with drink, therefore there is a context, there is a reason why I should get away with domestic violence on my partner. Violence? You can't really contest that, can you? Um, no, but it has to be taken in context. Is there a context for domestic violence? Well, there was in my case because I'd, I, I, I was irresponsible with alcohol, I was irresponsible with whiskey. If that's not bad enough... Have a listen to this. It's not that I don't want to go back into them, but I mean, they are long past. On that occasion, she'd been drinking, we'd both been drinking. I've, uh, maybe, I don't know what happened, but she started to grab me and I was pushing her back and I hurt her in that process. I'd have to take full responsibility. But I mean, it does take two, you know, it, it, it takes two to sank, but I'm not trying to absolve my, my, actions or you know at all he starts by saying it's not that i don't want to go back into them meaning the stories of domestic violence i mean they are long past on that occasion she'd been drinking we'd both been drinking i i maybe i don't know what happened but she started to grab me look at the order there the most important thing for him to get across to us is she'd been drinking then it's we'd both been drinking, but he never just says he had been drinking. He doesn't take that responsibility for saying I had been drinking. She'd been drinking. We'd both been drinking. And then I don't know what happened, but she started to grab me. There's a jump there. Something happened. You do know what happened. There's a jump in time there. And she started to grab me. Ian, you grab someone or you don't grab someone. You don't start to grab someone. And then he says, and I was pushing her back and I hurt her in that process. I'd have to take full responsibility. But I mean, it does take two, you know, it, it, it takes two to tack. But I'm not trying to absolve my actions of, you know, at all. He says, I'd have to take full responsibility. Not I do take full responsibility or I take full responsibility. It's I'd have to take full responsibility. Why? Because you got caught. Because Jules was there as it happened. She was the victim of your domestic violence and she told other people about it. I think that's why he has to take full responsibility. He'd like to blame the alcohol, um, but no. And right after saying he takes full responsibility or he'd have to take full responsibility, he follows it up by saying it does take two and he's going to say it takes two to tango. That's horrible. He doesn't take responsibility at all. This is bad. He says, I was pushing her back and I hurt her in that process. 
he takes a little bit of ownership. I was pushing her back, but that's ownership of defending yourself, pushing her back, getting this mad woman who was trying to grab me away. It wasn't my fault. I was pushing her back. I, I was attacked first and I hurt her. So he does say I hurt her, but only in that process and only because she'd been drinking. Again, it's her fault. It takes two. And then he says, I'm not trying to absolve my actions. You are, Ian. You are. So there he is blaming drink for what happened, which reminds me of his words about how much he had to drink on the night in question, on the night Sophie was murdered. It was nothing unusual for me particularly to get up at maybe three or four o'clock in the morning. If, my, if I woke up and my mind was alert and alive and I had something to write about and come down and write. Even if you had a lot to drink? Um, well, I hadn't had that much to drink that, that night. Um, I mean, I'd had a couple of pints and I might have had a whiskey or two, but uh, that was over the course of the evening. I said at the time we listened to those words, he's downplaying the amount he had to drink that night. He had a lot more to drink that night. He, the couple of pints is more than two. And a whiskey or two is more than two. And that was over the course of an evening. So he definitely was drinking more and he blames drinking for the domestic violence what else is he blaming drinking for? What else does drink have responsibility for in Ian Bailey's life? It's not that I don't want to go back into them, but I mean, they are long past. On that occasion, she'd been drinking, we've both been drinking. I've uh, maybe, I don't know what happened, but she started to grab me and I was pushing her back and I hurt her in that process. I'd have to take full responsibility. But I mean, it does take two, you know, it, it, it takes two to sank, but I'm not trying to absolve my, my actions or, you know, at all. In looking at Ian Bailey's words on the murder of Sophie Toscan de Plantier, he very much suggests it was nothing to do with me and I'm not responsible for it, which is exactly how he talks about domestic violence here. The difference is with the domestic violence, there are witnesses, so he can't deny it happened and he can't put the blame elsewhere, although he tries to put the blame on the drink and to Jules as well. Oh, in his words, responsible for this domestic violence. He tries to give the impression that he takes responsibility for that domestic violence, but he doesn't. He blames other people. I wasn't there on the night that Sophie was murdered. I don't know what happened, but I have studied Ian Bailey's words about it and his denials, they're qualified and they are distant. They're unreliable. Yes, the witnesses may have fabricated the evidence. That doesn't mean that he didn't do it. Jules, she seems to be hiding things about what happened on that night or what she thinks happened on that night. She contradicts herself at points. But Ian's words don't fill me with any confidence that he's innocent. From his words, I think he knew Sophie or knew of Sophie better than he will admit. I think he knows what happened on the night she was killed. Ian Bailey denies murdering Sophie Toscan de Plantier. The case remains unsolved. If you've got any more comments or questions, wordsofwestcourt.com is the website. And there's a new podcast in the works dealing with a very unusual kidnapping, which will be out in a few months' time. And have a look at neveratruerword.com, my website, with loads of writing on true crime. You'll also find um, a couple of books available for you if you want to learn how to decode people's words yourself. Neveratruerword.com.